This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hi, everyone. Welcome in a new episode of our Radar podcast by Nextworks. In this episode, I am here with Peter Hinzen. Hey, Peter. Hi. See you, Stephen. <laughs> and I have Pascal Coppens, who is back for the first time in this new season. Hello, Pascal. Hi, Stephen. And then we have Laurence van Elehem, who is here as well. Hey, Laurence. Hi. Good to see all of you. And uh, I'm very excited that we can record a new episode of our Radar. And I'm very happy that you are back, Pascal. It's been a while at the last time you were out with COVID, but we're very, very happy that you are here because we have so many questions for you. I mean, we are now seeing these uh, protests in China, in Shanghai, in Peking. We hear all these yeah, strange expressions like we want the president to be gone. We want to stop with all the COVID lockdowns. What's happening? Um, is this the big revolution? Can you tell us the story behind what we read in the news? Well, Stephen, it's, uh, it's been a crazy weekend. Uh, it started uh, last week where there were protests in Urumuchi. Uh, Urumuchi is actually the capital of uh, Xinjiang province which we know more from the Uyghurs that, uh, that live there. But uh, Urumuchi is a place where it has been in lockdowns for three and a half months. And uh, so that's an incredibly long period, almost twice as long as, as the Shanghai lockdowns that we've known back in the second quarter of this year. And uh, the problem was that, or the issue was that there was an incident that um, people died in a fire because the fire brigade could not get to the people because the whole compound or the whole building was actually locked off uh, literally with fences. And so this, of course, created a whole protest in Ulamuchi that started on Friday. And then over the weekend, it got to Shanghai, then it got to Beijing, then it got to Wuhan, it got to, to Nanjing, it got to so many, many places these days. We're talking about six, seven cities in China where there's like a real protests happening to say we have to stop these hard lockdowns because this is not working. Now, I want to give maybe a little bit context about COVID itself and the policies and, and how we got there, because it's a quite interesting evolution that for two years after the Wuhan lockdowns in the second quarter of 2020, China has really lived in a bubble, meaning the whole world was going from one wave to another. China never experienced any wave until the second quarter of this year. And, um, and there were very few infections. But then suddenly when we let everything go, the whole world, and we kind of lived with COVID, which we are now, China had to suddenly realize that Omicron was much more infectious. And so many, many people got infected. I mean, when I talk about many in China at that time, we're talking about a hundred, a few hundreds. It's, it's not like thousands. But still, the, the government got really uh, scared. And that's when they started the lockdowns, and specifically those in Shanghai, which were for two months, were, were really hard lockdowns for the whole population. And this created a lot of anger, a lot of uh, foreigners specifically. It's a city where most foreigners live. They all decided, we're going to leave China. Factories were saying, we can't rely on China anymore as a supply chain. Companies were saying, we're not going to invest in China anymore because it's uncertain. And then in the third quarter, it went all better because it was summer and so the virus was a little bit less uh, infectious and there were less cities in, in lockdowns and the GDP grew again to almost 4%. So everything seemed to be going well. 
But then end of the summer, beginning of September, you saw again that more and more infections came. And that's when clearly China and the government in Beijing said, we're going to continue the lockdown policies, the COVID zero strategy, which means simply when there's an infection in a building, the whole building gets put in lockdown and you have to stay there for a whole week. I mean, that's kind of what it was. And then, of course, Xi Jinping got his third term in uh, October, and we saw the pictures with this six uh, allies around him that all are loyalists to Xi Jinping. And basically, the story after that was clearly they're not going to change the COVID-0 policy. And so the stock exchange went down, everybody panicked again, and it was like, oh, China's going to stay closed for another year. People are talking what's going to be until 2025. And so a lot of despair at that moment. But then on the 11th of November this year, uh, suddenly China came out with 20 new policies for releasing or getting out of this COVID situation. And so this was really relaxing the policies, lots of things. I mean, too many to name, but it was really that you wouldn't have to stay too long into, into lockdown anymore, not the whole city in lockdown anymore, but maybe just a building or maybe just have house, stay at home, just like we did in Europe and stuff like that. So lots of, of new points. And so the governments were really excited. The stock exchange went up and everybody was happy. China's going to open up again. And after the winter, everything's going to be fine and nice. And, and so what happened, of course, is that suddenly, instead of having a few hundred infections, it went up. And today, we're talking about 40,000 every day, which, I mean, in, in Belgium, we had that also. But if for China, coming from 100, uh, 40,000, it's like, wow, this is a volcano that just erupted. And so for them, it's it's... The problem is that the local governments, and I think this is where many people misunderstand a little bit what has happened, is the local governments had a dual strategy or a dual policy that they had to apply. One was to make sure that um, everything was relaxed and they were much more localizing in, in locking down certain areas and not just everybody the same. This was much more detailed, much more relaxed. And so they had to show that they were trying to get out of this lockdown. But at the same time, if the infections went up, they actually could lose their job if they didn't uh, stop it in, in time. And so they felt they had like two different directions to go at the same time with the reaction that as soon as the infection swelled up and, and many more people got infected, many cities started again putting everybody in lockdown. And so this is what the protests really created, that people felt like this is a yo-yo environment where it's one day it's this, the other day it's that. And, and so we can't continue like that. And Pascal, do you think that the protests, do they have impact in a country like China? Does that make a difference? Well, it makes a difference in the way that it's a clear, clear signal towards Beijing that the population, the people in China, most of the people want this COVID lockdowns to end because it's disrupting too much companies. I mean, specifically the small enterprises, which is likely the livelihood of many people in China. It is disrupting uh, a lot of people to travel, which is also about business, and but also about other things, just going back to your family, which is a huge issue for Chinese, specifically Chinese New Year coming up. It's disrupting too much. And so it is giving a signal to Beijing that this should stop. Now, they knew that before the protests, and that's why they had these new measures. The problem is that this time, it's much better organized than it used to be before. Before, it was like a few people in the building that were really losing their mind and getting really upset because they couldn't get medicines or they couldn't get food or something. It was very 
a person based or one person or a few people based. Now it's it's organized. And that is the first time we've seen that's probably in decades that people are organizing protests on the streets. And this is why the whole world is now reporting on this, because this is unusual and not seen for China typically. But the question is, what does this all mean and where will this end up? And I think right now, it's quite interesting to see that this is happening mainly in the cities where primarily uh, foreigners live. It's mainly in the cities where there's a lot of international business. And it's also in the cities where there's a lot of uh, educated people, uh, like Beijing, Shanghai, I mean, uh, Nanjing, this is where the universities are. And so it is a little bit like we had in Hong Kong as well with the protests. It's a student revolution, as you could call it. But I wouldn't call this a revolution yet, because if you look at the numbers, I mean, it's really on the scale of China. I mean, there's even in Shanghai, just on, on Sunday, there was a thousand people protesting. Well, that's like 10 people in Belgium. Mm -hmm. It's not going to make a huge difference. And the police acted very quickly. Over the weekend, I spent an hour or two looking on CNN to just see what the reactions were in the comments on the, the video images that I think we've all seen uh, online now. And uh, it was quite interesting to see how the world was saying, yeah, uh, the it's the end of China. Xi Jinping will lose his job. It's, it's basically the next revolution. It started. These were the words that you can read everywhere. And then I started reading the Chinese text of the local people, and it was the complete opposite uh, of most of them. Not all of them, but most of them were writing like, yeah, this is put into scene. This is, a, this is just a show off. It's not really happening. Xi Jinping will never be affected. Uh, and we love Xi Jinping, stuff like that. So it was, it was very strange to see this almost complete opposite, which doesn't mean that there aren't many people in China that really are upset at this moment. But I think if I, even in Tsinghua University, where there was a, a protest and you saw them shout things like, uh, we want democracy, freedom of speech, uh, stuff like that, you feel that this is more aimed at the policies than it's aimed at Beijing in itself. And it's very well organized. I mean, many people in the West are now comparing this to Tiananmen in 1989, saying this is a second revolution. And uh, I've talked to a few Chinese friends of mine about that, and, and their reaction is, is like, well, Tiananmen is, is very different. This was at a very different time in history. I mean, where people had no idea where China could end up. It was still very poor and weak. And, and so people thought the whole system should change to actually help China to improve. Well, today, China is doing pretty well, except for a number of problems that they have internally that they need to fix. But from an economic point of view, I mean, it became the second biggest economy in the world. So many Chinese feel China did pretty well. And it's also what's very interesting to see at these protests is that the protests are not represented by all the ages or all the generations. It's, it's really student protests at this moment or just graduates, people that don't find a job, people that actually uh, want to express their voice strongly. But most of the generations were not at these protests. And so it's a very different thing. And then there's social media, as people said. The difference is Tiananmen didn't have social media. So people went there because they thought something needs to change, something needs to happen. Now they just go on their mobile phone and they can see what is happening. They know what it is. So the fact that millions and millions of Chinese know exactly what's happening at this stage, but they're not going to these protests also is saying something. At the same time, you have to look at the fact that this is the first time that uh, for long that people have been shouting indeed. And so it could really 
uh, escalate. But at this stage, I don't see the signal yet to escalate, meaning that it will go into multiple cities probably and continue. But it's not that it's going to go, uh, in my view, but I could be wrong, but in my view, into tens or hundreds of thousand people starting to protest it. It still is very local and very targeted. What you've also seen, and I think that's also something to notice, is that as soon as these protests started, Beijing let go of the, the lockdowns of most of the places. So there was a very quick reaction as well to then uh, not continue to be too stringent on these policies. Maybe we have to understand a little bit what the problem is of if they let go. According to Bloomberg, if they would let go today, 5.8 million people would die in China. And so you could say, yeah, Xi Jinping and the Communist Party want to just keep the power. But I mean, if you if you have 5.8 million deaths on your conscience, that is more than Mao Zedong probably had in certain periods. So so it is something to, to take into account. It's interesting to see how they will ever get out of it because there's yeah. the vaccines are not as high performing as the ones that we have in the West. And the mm -hmm. natural immunity is super, super low. Yep. And the only way to, to get out is to get immunity. But if you get immunity, then people die. So it's like, how can you ever get out of that? So China put themselves in, the, I mean, they're stuck in their own policies. And so they're really annoyed in a way to find a good way to get out because whatever option they take will be the wrong option. Mm -hmm. Either people die or people just can't cope with it anymore. I think what they expected, and I think that's the, the miscalculation that they made, is that they could keep these policies until after the winter, hoping that by after the winter, the virus would be even weaker, hoping that the vaccines, more people would be vaccinated because they're doing a new campaign since November 11. They're working on an mRNA vaccine and they are hoping to get that since phase three to get that through. They're also been building huge amount of hospitals in Guangzhou, there's now 70,000 ICU beds that have been built just to prepare for it. They've been doing a lot of things, probably six months too late to get it all started, but they did a lot of things to prepare for the months of March, April, just after Chinese New Year. The problem is these protests are now erupting now and not after the winter. And so I think they're miscalculated four months and their strategy is built on getting through the winters with more lockdown still. And then after the winter, then we, we're ready with an army of, of doctors and COVID and we've got most old people vaccinated and, and then we'll have to do it. And so this four months is actually where I think China will have to make a decision whether they speed up this, this opening up. And if they do, they're going to have many more deaths on their hands or if they keep it on until after the winter. And then they're going to have many more protests on their hands. So it's one or the other. So yeah. that well, is the hard choice to make. Interesting to see how that will uh, evolve. I'm very curious and, and hopefully soon they will figure it out so that we can go back to China, Pascal, and see what the country looks like in this new post-COVID kind of world. Um, let's move to the next topic. Disney has a new CEO. Uh, you all know that there are many the Disney fans at Nextworks, I am one of them, but Disney is now in difficult waters at this time. Uh, their stock is at a 20-year-old low. Um, it went down 40% this year, uh, and especially last week when the last results came out, they were still presented by Bob Chapek. Uh, it was a big disappointment. Uh, Disney Plus mainly is like, on the one hand, very successful with the number of subscribers. They have more subscribers than 
Netflix, but they're losing money like crazy with Disney Plus, and that is hurting the entire company. So, so they're in a difficult position, and they decided to fire Chapek and bring back Bob Iger. Now, it's interesting to see when you look at the evaluation of Bob Chapek. Of course, a lot of people look at the financials and look at the problems that they have with their stock, but there are also a number of complaints that are really focused on customer experience. One of them is that Bob Chapek made a number of very unfriendly decisions, mainly to increase prices in the parks to financially support the Disney Plus that then is losing a lot of money. So a few things that he did, for instance, was increase the overall prices of the parks with like 20%. And on top of that, he replaced the free FastPass system with an expensive paying system called Genie Plus, where you have to pay like 20 euros a person extra per day to get access to FastPass. And even that doesn't give you access to all attractions because the really popular attractions and you have to pay individual lanes, FastPass lanes and buy tickets for that, like the new Star Wars ride, and you have to pay $20 per person on top of that to get a FastPass there. So if you go there with a family of four, it's almost unaffordable to pay for all these fast lanes. And a lot of complaints about that. And a second part of the complaints is the question if Disney is maybe too woke with the number of their decisions. Like if you look to the last releases and the upcoming releases of some of their films, the topic in the media was mostly about the decisions they made about diversity. If you look, for instance, to the real life version of The Little Mermaid that comes out early 2023, the main role of Ariel is played by Hal Bailey, uh, which is a woman of color. And a lot of people are like, okay, that's that's no problem. But the story, you know, happened in Copenhagen a few hundred years ago. There were no women of color there. So isn't that a little bit over the top to then make that decision? It's okay to be diverse, but it still has to be authentic and realistic. And, and a lot of the debate is going about that. Like when they launched Lightyear, the prequel of Toy Story, Everything in the media was about the fact that this was the first Disney film where two women kissed, or you had the remake of Pinocchio, where a lot of the story was about the fact that the fairy godmother was a woman of color. So they're really investing in diversity, which is really great. But you see in the press and in the in, on social media that a lot of their early fans are feeling that it's not really authentic and that maybe this is sometimes a bridge too far. And because of that, you know, the movies aren't as popular anymore as they were. So a very difficult debate, but this is one of the topics that was on the table um, when you look at the feedback um, about Bob Chapek. And now Bob Iger is back. He's 71. He was the CEO of Disney between 2005 and 2020. I don't know if you've if you read his book, The Ride of a Lifetime. It's one of my favorite books. It's his biography about what he did at Disney and how he became CEO of Disney. And it was always my childhood dream to become the CEO of Disney. But when I was reading his book and I was reading the introduction, I had second thoughts because I will never forget that. He, he described the day in his life as CEO, and it was the day that he had to open Disneyland in uh, Shanghai, in China. And they've been working 15 years on that. And then it was the big day, the opening ceremony. But the night before, there was a big shooting in Orlando. And the police figured out that uh, the, the target where the shooting happened was like a dance club. But the initial idea of the guy who did the shooting was to come to Disney World and kill a whole lot of people in Disney World. So luckily that didn't happen. 
But he said, as CEO of, of Disney, we have so many employees. If something happens in Orlando, we always have to check if some of our employees were part of it. So the conclusion was that I think two or three of his employees were killed and hurt in that shooting in that dance club. Uh, so that was terrible news for him. So then he had to get ready for the speech. And just before he went on stage, a little girl in Disney World was grabbed by an alligator, was pulled into the lake and was killed there. Another big crisis. And then 10 minutes later, he had to open a Disney park and be joyful and cheerful and say, this is the happiest place on earth. So the complexity of what happens in his life as CEO of Disney, it's really impressive. I, I highly recommend reading The Ride of a Lifetime. And it tells the story on how he you know, acquired Pixar and Marvel and Star Wars and then eventually Century Fox, which was the foundation to start with Disney+. Plus. So he did the big turnaround of, of Disney making it hugely, hugely successful, making it loved by loads of people around the world. And now he's coming back. So the expectations are extremely, extremely high. When, when you read you know, the, the, the reactions now on the blogs of Disney fans, they all hope that he will undo all the decisions of Bob Chapek related to the Disney parks. I personally think that's very doubtful. I cannot see him like lowering prices, just killing the Genie Plus system again. He needs the money. And I think his big focus will be, and this is what I'm really curious about, what will the Disney Plus strategy be? Because I know Disney is doing pretty well, but Disney Plus is, yeah, they, they are successful, but they haven't figured out a business model yet that is profitable for a company like Disney. It's not just getting as many people on board as possible at any cost. Disney wants it to be profitable. And this is going to be his, I think, key priority of his next term, and let's see if he figures out a way to solve that in, in the next two years. Maybe just a comment on that, uh, Stephen. When you talk about the customer experience part and the fact that you know, Bob Chapek made some you know, uh, unpopular choices, especially in the theme parks, he ran theme parks for five years before he became CEO. Mm -hmm. So this is not somebody who doesn't understand the value of you know, people being happy in the Magic Kingdom. In my opinion, I don't think it's because Bob Chapek really didn't understand, you know, how to build an enjoyable customer experience in the theme parks. I think it's fundamentally because they really need money, money to fuel Disney+. Plus. And if you saw in the latest report that Disney+, Plus is now losing $1.5 billion because it's an arms race and not just a technological arms race to compete with Netflix, but more it's content. a content mm -hmm. arms race. And I mean, I'm a big fan of Andor, for example. I love Andor, but you can clearly see this is a really, really expensive product to make. What they've done, I think, in expanding the, the Star Wars franchise on Disney Plus is truly amazing. But it is a really expensive race. And I think, in a way, Bob Chapek didn't put that in motion. It was Bob Iger who put that in motion. He did. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, I think you know, what happened is the moment that Chapek took over, he actually had to continue down the Disney Plus ride because it was the only way to actually you know, think about a future that would make sense. But he had almost an impossible ride. So it's, I think it's really curious that Iger is now back because it really was his mess to clean up. And he selected Bob Chapek to be his uh, successor. Uh, he trained him for years, and now he's back to replace him. Yeah. By request of shareholders, I think. Uh, the pressure was so high just because the, the results are you know, below par that Bob Iger is coming back. So it's going to be interesting to see what he does. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the good thing is I remember the cover, and I think it was Fortune, but they put Bob Iger on the cover a few years ago as the emperor of tech, because he's really the one that really changed Disney around to become mm. more focused on technology and digital. And I think in a way, it's it's kind of strange that you need a 70-year-old guy now to come back and, and you know save the bacon, but I think that's mm. where they are. So it's going to be one of those wonderful opportunities to watch a company transform and reinvent itself. And I, I really hope they make it. As you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan as well. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're still going to the parks to support them. Absolutely. And make sure that we can contribute to a positive result next time. <laughs> but, but Stephen, just a question. Is this a, really a race to be the number one? Or um, could there be many in the first place? Do you mean with the streaming? Is it the streaming yeah, part? Yes, the streaming part. So because if it's really a race to be the number one, because I mean, you will set the standard and the market for the future, then, then you need indeed a huge amount of money. But is this an environment where the number one will take all? No, I don't, I don't think so anymore. Uh, today, Disney is number one in terms of subscribers. They have more subscribers than Netflix. It's a paying model. But we've already seen that Netflix has the same issues as, as Disney+. Plus. They're also losing money. They're losing subscribers. And the exit barriers to leave a platform and then go to another one and come back three months later are close to zero. And there are many people out there now that don't want to have three or four or five subscriptions. I mean, it's a lot of money if you add it all up. Mm -hmm. But then they say, oh, now this month I want to see all the Star Wars stuff. So I pay Disney for a month. And then after that, I go somewhere else. So you see that a lot of people are, are jumping from one platform to another. And today, I mean, let, let's be honest, both Netflix and Disney, they have so many subscribers. I think the challenge now is to make that profitable together with the high investments that they have. And, and like Netflix is launching an advertising model where it's cheaper to get your monthly subscription, but you're going to have advertising on the platform, which is really fantastic to see huh? because Netflix started as an alternative for linear TV because people didn't want to see advertising anymore. And now maybe the solution for them to become profitable is copy paste the business model of linear TV and add advertising to it. So I, I think that in, in the next year, we're going to see a lot of experimentation with new business models for these streaming platforms just, just to figure out how they can make more money with it. Because as Peter mentioned, I mean, you, you need the content. If you don't have new and cool content, then it's by definition, you will lose subscribers. You know, that, that rat race is like one that will keep on going forever and ever. So you need to figure out a way how to make more money out of those 250 million people that come to your platform. Yeah. Laurence, you also had something to, to add, right? Maybe a little bit of nuance to the fact that you said that they were losing viewers because of the, the whole woke thing. I don't know if you know about this series, but Netflix, as one of their most popular series, is Bridgerton, which is this period mm -hmm. drama with a lot of colored people also in roles that at that time would probably not have been possible. And you, you, they had reactions, that's true, but, but it, it still is one of their most popular series ever. So mm -hmm. maybe it's because Disney is more traditional brands that people are, are less likely to like it over there. I don't know, but on Netflix, it's really popular. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But it's fun with Bridgerton, the music as well. Huh? The, <laughs> the music is from our time and then they transform it back to the days of Bridgerton. So I think they, they've done a really cool concept, uh, concept there. Mm -hmm. Shall we go to the, the next topic? We cannot be silent about the FTX saga and the whole meltdown of the 
crypto world, we all feel the pain and we never look to our wallets anymore or not as often as we used to. Uh, it used to be like every day when you watched, it was like playing Monopoly that you passed start and you had more and more money. Today, we don't look at our wallet anymore, do we, Peter? No, no. And, um, you know, if you want to follow the monopoly analogy, maybe some people are going to go to jail, which is, I think, <laughs> the interesting thing about FTX. So FTX is probably one of the most um, exciting things that I have watched on Twitter in a very long time, because it was the collapse of a crypto empire in a matter of, say, two weeks. Uh, two weeks, we went from a rumor that something was wrong at FTX to a total absolute collapse of a $32 billion company. I mean, I have rarely seen a company implode so quickly, and I have rarely ever seen it being completely played out on Twitter. And that, I think, is absolutely fascinating. I don't know about you, Stephen, uh, but I was you know, in front of my Twitter eating popcorn and it was more exciting <laughs> than anything I've ever seen you know, in a cinema or on Disney Plus. But it was incredible. It was almost like watching you know, the, the Netflix in documentary time. in real time already being played out. Yeah. And of course, it has to do with the extremely colorful characters that we have. So as you know, um, you know FTX is founded by SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried. Ironic that a man with Bankman in his name is, you know, first the big attacker of the banks and now is, you know, following almost a Lehman Brothers pattern. But it was incredible because what happened is Sam Bankman-Fried founded this company, FTX, in May of 2019. That's it. I mean, that's just three years ago. And in a period of just over three years, it went from zero to $32 billion in valuation and then crashed to zero in just two weeks' time. That is just incredible. I've never seen that. And I don't think I will ever see something like this again. If you go to FTX now, if you go to the website, you actually are um, immediately transferred to um, a restructuring firm because uh, FTX, the number two crypto exchange in the world went into chapter 11. So they have filed for bankruptcy, which means that it's now been taken over by uh, a restructuring firm. And at this moment, for people who had an account with FTX, who had money with FTX, there is no idea if you're ever going to see any of that again. My prediction is probably not. I mean, that's basically what happens. And if you look at it, I mean, it was an extremely interesting period, as I said, First, there was rumors by Coindesk, which is one of the most important you know, news feeds out there on the crypto world, that something was wrong in the balance sheet. And then it all basically happened on Twitter because first you had Sam Bankman-Fried who said, no, uh, everything is fine. There is nothing true to these rumors. And then, you know, just 24 hours later, he basically announced on Twitter that there was something wrong and that he actually called his arch enemy, you know, Binance, 
and that Binance was going to take over FTX. Now, Binance is the company that is run by CZ, as he's named, but actually Binance is the biggest crypto exchange out there. And Changpeng Zhao, which is the founder of Binance, is probably the lord of crypto. He is the number one player in the world. Binance is a company that I think is used by an enormous amount of people as their exchange and wallet. But number two, FTX, had a very strange relationship with the number one Binance. I mean, FTX was actually owned by Binance for 20% because, you know, they acquired very early on a 20% stake worth $100 million at that moment, just six months after FTX was actually, you know, started. And then FTX was a meteoric rise and they used a combination of two things. One is they had extremely good marketing. I mean, FTX was, you know, a boy wonder, Sam Bankman-Fried, who was an MIT physicist, who was apparently the smartest guy in crypto. And he used that boyish charm extremely well to market the company. And the second is they used an enormous array of influencers. I mean, uh, they used, uh, you know, uh, sports celebrities, they used um, models, they used, you know, one of the best ways of using influencers in the world to actually market the brand of FTX. Uh, they bought the Miami Heat name. I mean, it was incredible to see that FTX was all over the place. But what eventually turned out to be is that it was really a fraud scheme because next to FTX, you had a hedge fund called Alameda Research, which was you know, privately owned by Sam Bankman-Fried. They were making some really bad bets in crypto. And the moment that they were actually in trouble in the hedge fund, he just conveniently took the money that was deposited by his customers on FTX and used that to basically patch up the enormous hole that he put in his hedge fund. That is, of course, not kosher. That's probably why there's going to be a lawsuit. That's probably why he's going to go to jail for a very long time. But the implosion is just absolutely incredible. I mean, FTX was a company where big venture capitalists like Sequoia Capital had put in you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And you know, in a week time, Sequoia just said, yep, we lost it all. We're writing that to a big fat zero in our Excel spreadsheet. I mean, it was incredible what happened. And now, of course, the company is in chapter 11. Um, I think Sam Bankman-Fried did the worst possible thing by putting so much out there on Twitter that I think it's going to be used against him in a court of law. When he says publicly on Twitter, I'm sorry, I fucked up. I don't know if we've ever had you know, a <laughs> bankruptcy where the founder and the CEO of the company publicly on Twitter says, I'm sorry, I fucked up. I mean, if you're a judge and you have to rule on that bankruptcy and the founder basically admitted that he fucked up, what are you still supposed to do? What is really interesting is that um, during the enormous implosion, Sam Bankman-Fried didn't shut up, not just on Twitter, but also um, he had some conversations with a number of journalists in private messages that are now all over the place. And that is really, really scary to see. I mean, this is a guy that is clearly a danger to himself. But Sam Bankman-Fried had a conversation with a journalist from Vox. 
And those messages are now out because she actually published those messages out there. These were private conversations that she had in the moment that everything was going to shit. And there's basically two things. The conversation was, you know, everything you've talked about, everything that you've said about how solid you were, was that just a big facade? Was it just PR? Was it just hype? And he basically admitted in these private messages that a lot of the things that he was doing was actually just a complete cover-up and a facade. I mean, it's incredible to see the CEO and founder of a company doing these types of conversations with a journalist. I mean, it questions his mental sanity, really. But I think this is going to turn up in the court of law. The second thing is Sam Bankman-Fried was also an extreme uh, philanthropist. So early on, he actually... Uh, gave away a lot of his wealth, which is now worthless, of course, to actually help a number of causes that he found important. And there's a thing, um, you know, which is called effective altruism. And it's a, it's a movement where effective altruism really is all about the fact that rich people should actually become as rich as possible and then use that money to actually do something good for the world. That is basically effective altruism. And Sam Bankman-Fried was one of the proponents of that. But in those conversations with the journalist, he not just admitted that a lot of the things he did was just PR and fraud, but he also you know, showed that his belief of effective altruism was really to just heighten the image he had out there. It wasn't really genuine. It is incredible how much he's incriminated himself. My fascinating story about this is the moment that they declared bankruptcy, they actually have uh, somebody who then takes over as a caretaker to say, okay, I will step in and I will you know, handle this bankruptcy. That person who actually is now running FTX is the same person who handled Enron. And as you know, Enron was the biggest financial scandal ever to hit the US. This man who actually handled Enron and is now handling FTX, in the first statement when he went to the court and he deposited his statement, he said, I have never in my entire career seen such a complete scandal, uh, such a complete disaster in terms of corporate governance. If this comes from the man who handled Enron, I think we are in for one of the most amazing Netflix series ever. I mean, I know that I think we all enjoyed We Crashed, you know, talking mm -hmm. about the collapse of WeWork. I think this is going to be 10 times better than <laughs> We Crashed when this eventually comes out. The result now is scary because The Economist uh, last week had a headline said, is this the end of crypto? Mm -hmm. If you realize that in just a year time, the entire crypto world has lost more than $2 trillion in value, I think this is really ironic that an industry that was founded on the fact that you cannot trust banks because they're crooks, that's the whole idea of crypto, is now getting into fraud case after fraud case after fraud case. And it turns out, honestly, that if you don't have the right regulator, and you don't have the right governance, greed takes over and shit happens. I think that is the only conclusion that you can have. But is it the end of crypto? I don't think so, but this is something which has mortally wounded the crypto industry by far. What would be a way out? Is there uh, someone who can become a new leader of that industry or can restore trust? Or is it just gonna have to rebuild itself completely from the ground up? I think the only way out of this is actually where the same type of regulation that happened in the banking industry, 
that happened after 2008 no. when we had Lehman Brothers collapse and we saw, you know, an escalation of greed, actually people taking risks that were unheard of. I think we need to regulate this industry in the same way. The only problem is that this is not a local phenomenon that needs to be regulated by local regulation. These are global phenomena that we don't have that type of global regulatory you know, capabilities. And the fact that FTX was based in the Bahamas uh, gives you an indication that these guys were trying to evade, especially the US regulation. Mm -hmm. The fact that Binance, the biggest you know, exchange at the moment, is not even headquartered somewhere. It is basically out there. Uh, but you know, the, the, the founder of, of Binance, uh, has put Binance in Canada, in China, all over the place, and now it's nowhere. There aren't any headquarters there. And that kind of shows that at this moment, we don't have the legal mechanisms to do that because we have global phenomenon and we have local regulation. But in my opinion, the only way to solve this mess is with regulation. In Europe, for example, we're going to have Mika, which is basically the regulation for crypto assets. But it's probably going to be too little too late. I, I, I'm not sure uh, if, if we're going to be able to save it. But I think regulation is the only way out. And do you think that the, this is what's happening, Peter? Do you also think that this will slow down the whole blockchain technology, not from a crypto point of view, but more from a business case application point of view? I do believe so, because at this moment, because of what happened to FTX, I, I think there's two elements. This year, first of all, this, the collapse of stable coins just before the summer, mm -hmm. and you know the, the whole collapse of the Luna ecosystem, and then that was bad enough. But then we had the collapse of FTX, which is fraud, but even then, the whole idea that this would be cleaner than the evil old financial empire just clearly isn't true. I think this is not just going to hurt crypto, it's going to hurt blockchain as well. And that's very unfortunate because there is wonderful technology there that could be used you know, to really do something which has you know, potential, which has impact, which has you know, enormous uh, opportunities. But I think it's going to be thrown away with the bathwater at this moment, because at this moment, there are so many investors who lost so much money in everything that is crypto and blockchain related that I think they're going to think more than twice before they commit serious capital again. So I think it's going to be a huge impact on the entire blockchain industry. Well, I think in, in China, the blockchain industry will continue because they actually banned crypto pretty early on and, and were really focusing on blockchain and not so much on, on, on the coin itself. This was the reason that they didn't want crypto is to exactly for avoiding what exactly what happened just now with FTX. And so I think if uh, the reasoning of the Chinese government was very early on, like if, if hundreds of millions of Chinese are going to put their savings into crypto and uh, there's something happening like is happening now, which they had occurred with the P2P loans before, so they knew the dangers, they actually banned it in itself. And so they are still very much onto the blockchain. And so, of course, the question is how this will uh, evolve globally, because they wanted to avoid an economic crisis because of crypto. Now, the question is, is this creating an economic crisis as well? Is this adding to the other crises that we have at this moment, or is this just too small as an instance to really affect the Western world primarily. I think what we see is that 
overall, the amount of money that or the amount of value that is in crypto is still relatively small when you look at you know global economies. And so it's it's not a systemic fault, but it is a highly visible one. And especially many of the people who are using that as a way to actually say, you know, the, the, the old financial system doesn't work anymore. We need to completely reinvent that. We need to go to a new mechanism. That entire narrative has now completely gone. And you can clearly see that I think that is a PR blow from which it's going to be very difficult to recover. But it doesn't have a systemic impact. I mean, it's not that big enough. Crypto was still a very, very, very small of you know, a global economy, but it was a very visible one. And I think that visibility, I mean, again, I mean, one of the, the, the my favorite exponents of this is that there's now uh, a wonderful comparison because not too long ago, um, Sam Bankman-Fried was on the cover of Forbes the moment that they published the annual Forbes 400, which is the 400 richest people in the world. And he was on the cover and they said, at that age, you know, not even Mark Zuckerberg was so rich, you know, when he was so young. And of course, what is fabulous is just a few years ago, we had Elizabeth Holmes, you know, from Theranos, who was on the cover of the Forbes 400. And of course, you know, we had, you know, the, the sentencing of Elizabeth Holmes uh, just last week as well, when she was sentenced to, what is it, 11 years in prison because of the Theranos scandal. It is fabulous how Forbes keep picking the absolute fraudsters to put on their cover. I mean, that is just a, a wonderful PR exponent of that. But no, I don't think we're going to see a complete, complete collapse. Uh, yeah. But it was a highly visible one. Do you think this could give a boost to central bank digital currencies? I, I think it could, because I think the fact that we're going to use the power of digital currencies, blockchain or not, I mean, most CBDCs are not based on blockchain, but I do believe that this could actually have an, an, a huge potential push for digital currencies that are actually operated under the secure umbrella of a central bank. And I've been meeting with a lot of commercial banks over the last couple of months, and they are really warming up to central bank digital currencies. And I think this could actually be a, a benefit to them. Yeah, I have the same feeling. Shall we go on to the next topic, guys? Um, let, let's stay in technology. And Laurence, I'm, I'm coming to you. Uh, you have a topic um, that you want to talk about, about Tumblr, ActivityPub, and the Fediverse. What is that all about? Yes. So I want to talk about the fact that Tumblr is adding support for the ActivityPub protocol. Does that sound super technical and boring? Maybe, but it really isn't. Hear me out. Um, just super short for those people who don't remember what Tumblr is. It's a microblogging and a social networking website that's about 15 years old. Um, in the early 2010s, it was hugely popular, but we all know today, not so much, not a really big player. Super short also, why did it fade away? Um, first, it did not understand video enough, uh, which is bad, obviously. And the second one, it had a porn problem. It fixed the porn problem. The porn people left, and that turned out to be a lot of people. So that was bad too. But today it is interesting to see that it is experiencing a small comeback to do also with nostalgia uh, of young people, but also to do with the fact that it has been maybe a bit profiting from the Twitter drama, which Peter is going to talk about later. And so back to the news. Tumblr is planning to add uh, support for ActivityPub. And what is that? That is an open, 
decentralized communication protocol that is also behind the open and decentralized social networking software like PixelFed, which is a type of Instagram, like PeerTube, which is a kind of YouTube, and like Mastodon, which is a kind of Twitter, and which probably sounds familiar to you because um, that is where uh, some people, well, many people fled after Elon Musk went completely bonkers on Twitter. And so why on earth would we be excited by an open, decentralized social networking protocol? Well, because it is the beating heart of the Fediverse, which is, in fact, the sum of all the social media that I mentioned earlier. It's among which, for instance, Mastodon, but there are many, many more. And why do I think that our uh, listeners should know about the Fediverse? Because it is a network of social networks. And all of the Fediverse users can, in fact, directly interact and follow and communicate with each other. Just to give an example... People who are on Mastodon can directly follow and interact with people who are on PixelFed and on PeerTube, but from the environment of Mastodon. And just to compare, that would mean that you are on Twitter, for instance, and you get Instagram and YouTube posts in your feed directly that you can like and reshare. So it's not the links to these posts, which other Twitter users would have posted, but really the actual posts. And you could compare how it works to email. Um, You have many email providers out there, like Gmail or like Outlook, and users are able to send each other emails because the email servers use a standard protocol to communicate with mail. That protocol is SMTP. And with the Fediverse, that protocol is ActivityPub. And so I think that's interesting about this Tumblr news and that it shows that Classical Web2 players, like for instance Twitter or Facebook, could join the Fediverse just by implementing a social protocol on top of ActivityPub. And if they would do that, you could theoretically read and react to tweets, but from Facebook. Obviously, let's not be naive about that. That is probably not going to happen because Facebook wants to know what happens on Facebook. And it will probably not be happy if a Twitter user can see Facebook posts, but it cannot track that. But theoretically, that could happen. Now, all this talk about decentralization and interoperability between social media might ring a bell. Maybe you would think, aha, that is Web3. Well, no, because it does not run on the blockchain. There are different methods On the other hand, ActivityPub is the same communication protocol that is used in Web 3.0, which is a semantic web, which is Tim Berners-Lee vision of the next internet. Super short, as a reminder, because I talked about that in an earlier podcast, Web 3 and Web 3.0 are not the same things. In fact, we could probably say that Berners-Lee hates Web3 just as much as he loves Web3.0. And he recently said that blockchain for him is not the solution for building the next iteration of the internet. Probably many people will think that uh, after the FTX drama, but I'm not going to go into that. Just super short, what is the difference between Web3 and Web3.0? Well, the thing that they do the same is that they take away data and power from Web2 giants They want to give data control back to the users, um, but they do use different technologies. 
For me, the interesting part is that we have currently seen a lot of things happening when it comes to the next internet. Um, there are different technologies like Web3, like the semantic web, like the metaverse. And in that, in that next internet, we see two things often coming back, two patterns. The first one is decentralization, which is about giving power and privacy back to the users. And the second one is interoperability, obviously Web3 and Web3.0, but also when people talk about the metaverse, they also often talk about interoperability. Even Meta and Mark Zuckerberg have been doing that. But also we have the Internet of Things, which is about making devices interoperable. And recently, I don't know if you saw this passing, there was the launch of Matter, which is a new language for smart home devices, where in theory, they want to have your smart door lock communicate with your smart speaker, with your smart light switch, with your thermostat, which often cannot happen, but they have uh, developed a new language for that. And to conclude, I think we have always seen that humans are actually great at connecting humans, I think, through devices and through systems online, but also in companies and in governments. But when we reach a certain scale, we have always shown to be quite bad at connecting the systems and to make the systems talk to one another, to have them share the same language. So not just about the devices or about the software, but also, in this case, social media or uh, company silos or governments. And the bigger the scale, the bigger the differences and the more difficult communication becomes. And this is not a technology thing. It really is a human thing. And the second thing, when we reach scale, we have always shown problems to decide where the authority should lie. Is, is it central or is it decentral? So these two things always come back. And I think when we talk about the great search for the next internet, I think this is really a reflection of, of a great human search. And so that is why I wanted to talk about this quite technical, maybe, <laughs> subject of Tumblr and of ActivityPub. Thank you, Laurence. It's one of the challenges for all these Web3 applications that I see, like the Fediverse or Mastodon, is the lack of convenience and making it a nice environment to be for a customer. I, when Elon Musk took over at Twitter, we saw the same reactions as we've seen with Facebook in the past or with Instagram or WhatsApp, like, leave WhatsApp and let's go to Telegram or let's leave Twitter and let's go to Mastodon. And until now, eh, there, it, it never really happened. And I think there are two reasons. It's the usability of those platforms is usually not as good as the, the market leader. Plus, of course, the network isn't there. A lot of people that have reach on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram, they don't want to let go of the reach and build you know, their reach up back from zero on the other platforms. And that means that the most interesting people aren't really making the switch. So it's, it's very difficult. And I remember that we were in Paris on our Metaverse tour a couple of weeks ago. We had a speaker of Meta. It was actually a really good speaker. He was very convincing. And I think five times in his one hour talk, he like mentioned like, yes, and we have 3.5 billion daily users, of course. And that is their absolute strength. And as long as you have that community and you make it user friendly, I think the large majority of the world couldn't care less about centralized or decentralized and that it's just people like us who tend to talk about this, but that most people just want to have a few minutes or a few hours of fun and entertainment and information gathering. And it's very difficult with the technical and theoretical arguments to convince a large majority to make a switch because of that. 
So I'm, I'm still not convinced about all these philosophies, if they will also make it in the future. I'm very curious to see if maybe one day, you know, there will be one who stands up and is user-friendly and brings everything together that we need. Then I will be a really believer. But at this point, I'm not sure if this will be a big hit. I, I, I totally agree. Two things I want to add. Well, yes, Facebook has 3 billion users, but the Horizon Suite, which is the metaverse mm -hmm. part of Facebook, does not have yeah. as many. I think it it's was 300,000 or something. It was a lot less. And it's also, I don't know if you saw that passing, but um, apparently Meta has even trouble convincing their own employees to go on Horizon. So let's see about that, what happens. Yeah. Well, there they have the interesting partnership with Microsoft, of course. Mm -hmm. Yes, The fact absolutely. that they're working together with Microsoft, those two together can be really interesting. But you're True. right, it's, they're having difficulties. But I think like Horizons is an example of a platform that is, in my opinion, gimmicky. I mean, it's not good enough yet to convince the mass, which is really sad if you see that they invest all these billions and that the quality is still very average. It's really true that a lot of the Fediverse players have UX problems. It's super difficult to join. For instance, if you want to join Mastodon, you have to find a server to join. And it's a whole process. It's really complex. And in fact, that is the, the reason why Tumblr announced that they were joining the Fediverse because joining Tumblr is a lot easier than joining Mastodon and you would, via Tumblr, be able to join. But still, you're right, UX problems, absolutely. And adoption problems because the total number of the Fediverse is over 8.5 million, <laughs> while uh, Facebook, like you said, is 3 billion. So that's absolutely yeah. true. But I think really the interesting part here is, like I, I concluded, is the search of even humanity and not just in technology for decentralization and interoperability. And everything that we see happening around the next internet is focused on that. There are other things, yeah. obviously, also. And I'm really curious as to will we ever get that or won't we? And, and if we get that, how would it happen? My two cents on that, Laurence, is that maybe I'm getting old, but interoperability, <laughs> I've heard that word probably too many times <laughs> over my career. But every time people agree on interoperability, it's because they probably, in the back of their minds, they already have something that's going to differentiate themselves from the interoperability. I mean, that is something which I've seen over and over again. I mean, especially when you have technology companies getting together, say, yes, 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 we're going to become compatible and interoperable. They're already thinking about what they can do to differentiate themselves at a higher level or with more features or more exclusive things. I mean, look at the world today where after what, you know, 25 years, we finally, finally now have legislation to make sure that charging our devices is going to be something that is going to be compatible from one device to another. It took us 25 years to do that. So in a complex world of content and communication and interactions, I honestly think that is not going to be easy. And I think the interesting thing is once people agree on a standard, yeah, you see the industry moving away from that with more diversity and features. So maybe I'm skeptical, uh, Laurence, but I think it's a nice idea, but the practical realization of that is often really hindered by economic reality. And in the meantime, we see the results of Elon Musk and Twitter. He is sharing that every minute of the day. And I don't know if you saw the slides, Peter, of his uh, in-company presentation that he threw on Twitter. I think it was last night or two days ago in which he said it's the, you know, in terms of users, we have an all-time high. So instead of people walking away because of me, we have people coming in thanks to me. 
And I have the same feeling as you had with FTX. This is now an acquisition where one of the most visionary entrepreneurs of the world comes in and is in real time telling us what he is doing and asking the people what he should do about certain decisions. So again, unseen. So I'm really wondering what your opinion is about the, the whole Elon Musk Twitter situation at this point. It is spectacular. I mean, by all accounts. I mean, as we talked about at FTX, we've never seen an implosion of a company, a bankruptcy played out in real time and with such visibility. We're now seeing a corporate takeover being played out in real time and with visibility that is unparalleled. And I think Elon Musk has an enormous amount of loyal fans. That is a given. If I look at my family, our 19-year-old son, he's an Elon believer and you know, whatever Elon could do, he's still going to be an absolute believer. So he has loyal fans beyond anything that Steve Jobs or Bill Gates ever had. This is incredible. But he's now doing something that could really make or break the guy. I mean, that's what I believe. He's always done crazy stuff, right? I mean, if he says, I want to change the payment industry with PayPal, or I want to change mobility with Tesla, or I want to change space with SpaceX, people rooted for the guy because he was you know, basically the, the challenger. But now he's doing something completely different. He's taking over an established business and he's doing the dismantling in real time in a way that is beyond brutal. I think uh, firing half the people a week after he took over the company is something that I have never seen in my lifetime. And the way he did it and you know, the, the absolute brute force mechanism is something where you have to question whether that is what HR is going to be in the future. Because honestly, I don't think he's really, really making a wonderful PR story there. I mean, firing half the people is one thing. Then the people who are left is the, the way he's been treating them is quite spectacular. I mean, being a computer scientist myself you know, by training, I can only fear what happened when the famous code review happened at Twitter. So if you recall, Elon comes in and says, now I'm going to look at all the code of Twitter because I want to see that what I bought is actually kosher. This is the equivalent of somebody who buys a secondhand car, opens up the hood of the car and wants to look at the engine. Now, code review is a very tricky thing to do because Reading somebody else's code is not easy, right? I mean, programmers are notorious for having ways and constructing things that are not easy to read. But Elon says, no worries, I'm going to come in with my Tesla engineers because they are the smartest engineers on the planet and I will review the code of Twitter. Not to mention the fact that the programming languages used at Tesla are completely different from the programming languages that are used at Twitter, but he's going to do it. And then you can see the absolute chaos. My favorite story is every programmer, every engineer at Twitter gets an email from Elon Musk saying, code review today, print out all your code so I can see how much code you have made in the last 12 months. <laughs> now, looking at the volume of code is not a good idea anyway, but at nine o'clock in the morning, the Twitter engineers get this email. So they start printing out like crazy all the code they have produced. By 11 o'clock, two hours later, they get another email from Elon saying, um, made a mistake, probably not a good security idea to print out all your code. 
I'm sorry, let's just shred that. So all the engineers rushed to the 10th floor at Twitter to shred the code they have been building for the last 12 months. What a chaotic situation. I mean, this is not a way to run a company. So- Did you hear, the, Peter, did you hear the batch story? Of the what batches? is the batch story? So at, at Friday morning, they want to go back to the office and the batches don't work anymore. So no one can get in. So they're all standing there on the streets of San Francisco because <laughs> they all have to come to the office, but no one can get in. And apparently the people and the person who is responsible for that got fired. So there's <laughs> no one who knows how to fix it. So Elon himself had to call the guy and say, uh, I made a mistake. Uh, we can't enter the building anymore. I'm going to rehire you. Can you please come back and let us in? And there was this announcement, we're going to be closed for three days because our system is blocked. And he had to rehire him and then they could come back to work. So but it's, those it's, kind of it's, things. it's a wonderful <laughs> example of the absolute chaos. I mean, first of all, if you fire half the people, you're going to expect that. As you know, just hours after firing everybody, he started emailing people, you know, saying, uh, made a mistake. We might need your skills after all. Would you want to come back? Why would you want to do that? But I think in, in a way, there are two fundamental questions here is one, what is the economics of this? Because I think honestly, he is probably showing this type of chaotic behavior because he really feels that from an economic point of view, this is a very fragile situation. I think he overpaid for this company. I mean, $44 billion for Twitter, that is probably not what Twitter was worth. So maybe Twitter was worth, I don't know, $10 billion or $15 billion, but not 44. So the amount of stress he has to make sure that this is going to generate enough cash to repay all the loans, that is insane. So there is an economic question here. The second really is, you know, in terms of is this a way to treat people? And I think this is where we're going to have wonderful case stories written about this. I mean, it's not just the, the firing, it's, it's the chaos, it's the way he's treating the engineers. My amazing exponent of this was the email he sent. Of course, Elon has an amazing capability of sending very, very clear emails. He did that at Tesla when he said, if you're not at your desk, I will assume that you have resigned. I mean, to be super clear was the title of his email there. The email he sent to the remaining employees at Twitter was called A Fork in the Road. And he basically said, you know, we are going through the most difficult time in Twitter history. And he says, we will need to be extremely hardcore. Now, I don't know what that means. If you would get an email saying, I want you to be extremely hardcore, what does that mean? But in the email, he said, this is going to be a time where only exceptional performance, exceptional performance will constitute a passing grade. So he basically said, if you're still at Twitter and you're still employed, if you're not going to go beyond you know, what is humanly capable, only then you can actually stay. A passing grade is exceptional performance. I mean, imagine that in any <laughs> other company in the world, you would have an HR manager saying, if you want to stay working here, the only way you're going to have a passing grade is if you show exceptional performance. And then the worst thing in that email, he basically says, if you want to you know, be part of this new Twitter, please click yes on the link below. And then you had to click yes. And all you could click yes to is say, I will need to show exceptional you know, performance and be extremely hardcore. And if he says, 
anyone who has not done so by five o'clock tomorrow, you will receive your resignation and get three months of pay. I mean, my God, first of all, <laughs> if you would do that in Europe as a CEO, you would be sued, you would probably be picked up and you would be in jail the next day. I mean, there is no way we can actually have that happening in a normal work environment because it's illegal to do that you know, in, in most European countries. But the fact that he's doing that shows, I think, a desperation. It's almost a chaotic situation that just is fueled by that economic instability that is out there. So I think we're seeing one of the strangest things. And he, he has all these hurrah slides, as you said in the beginning, you know, mm -hmm. user signups are up and user activity is up. Wow. And honestly, I had not been using Twitter for months. Yeah. And now I'm back at Twitter because it's a strange combination because there is so much shit happening at this moment that Twitter seems to be a really interesting way to keep track of that. But I'm not sure if this is really just a flash in the pan. The biggest worry is that he's losing advertisers and he's losing advertisers at an alarming rate. And honestly, you're not going to get that by, you know, having your blue ribbon revenue. I mean, that is just, but, but that, that again was a crazy example. I mean, the, the whole blue ribbon thing where he said, okay, $8 for the blue ribbon. And the $8 was a conversation he had with Stephen King on Twitter, where first he said, $20 for a blue ribbon. And Stephen King, the novelist said, I'm not going to pay $20. And Steve, and Elon Musk responded saying, okay, well, what about $8 then? I mean, if you do pricing mechanisms you know, in that way, you are clearly showing complete chaotic behavior. But I think one of the interesting tweets is not just the, the hurrah slides, but he recently said, uh, just this weekend, he said, I think I see a path to Twitter exceeding a billion monthly users in 12 to 18 months. And that is going to be the big question mark. Is he capable of really attracting more and more users to Twitter? And is he capable of reaching that 1 billion user mark? You know, if he achieves that and he has these people on Twitter, then probably advertisers are going to come back and then what he's done will be the most brilliant corporate move ever. But at this moment, I wouldn't bet my money. I, I'd rather bet it on crypto than on Twitter at this moment. That is, that is my simple conclusion. I think the big difference also between Twitter versus Tesla, SpaceX is Tesla and SpaceX are engineering problems that he's solving. I mean, Peter, we've been a couple of times at SpaceX and at Tesla and, and every time from all employees you hear he's very demanding, but he's also brilliant in solving engineering problems. I mean, I, I remember the story that they told us that in the middle of, of the SpaceX factory, he parked his desk there for a week. And after a week, he had like 50 points to improve the, the quality of the rockets. And it all made a lot of sense. So everyone, all those engineers were like, wow, he, he's the smartest guy of the group. So we're going to follow him. And you feel a deep belief at SpaceX that even though he's so demanding and very hard to work with, that he can really make a difference. If you look at Twitter, it's not an engineering problem. It's a community problem. It's a network. It's a content problem, which I think demands completely different solutions and approaches than just fixing the code or installing eight or $10 features a month. This is really about how can you engage hundreds of millions of people to make it valuable to spend a significant amount of time with you. So the question is, is he as brilliant in solving community issues as he is in solving 
engineering problems. So that's going to be that's going to be really cool to see. But you're absolutely right. And he, of course, has an absolute belief in engineering is going to solve the world. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if you look at a lot of the people that were fired, a lot of the people were in that field of filtering content, making sure that you could control the content that was actually mm -hmm. being put onto the platform. This is a challenge that Facebook has as well, because they have thousands and thousands of people and all they do is basically police content because they have not been able to have a technological solution for that. Mm -hmm. And I think Elon fundamentally believes he's going to solve it with code. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if that is absolutely feasible, but um, it is, I think, uh, a great example of maybe these companies that you know, need to reinvent themselves. And it was long overdue because we've been to Twitter many times, Stephen. Mm -hmm. Twitter was always the most relaxed company in the world. You saw a lot of people there and you were wondering what the hell they were doing. It was probably not a well-run company for a very long time, but this is a brutal reckoning. But it's, I think, probably a, a great example that many technology companies need to reinvent themselves now. And Elon is doing that with Twitter in a very harsh way, but Facebook needs to reinvent itself. Google needs to reinvent itself. Amazon. All of these tech companies are now for the first time having to show that they're not just capable of exponential growth, but capable of reinvention. Yeah. And I think in, in that way, uh, a lot of the unicorns now are facing a Phoenix moment. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, Laurence, what do you think? Is this the end of the big tech era? Well, I am glad you asked, Stephen, <laughs> um, <laughs> because I wanted to talk about the fact that we have really been experiencing a, a true bloodbath in big tech with several layoffs, with a lot of budget cuts. Um, just in 2022, we have seen 860 tech companies that laid off almost 140,000 people. And just for your information, if you ever want to follow the numbers on that, and there's an interesting website called layoffs.fyi, where you can see in real time all the numbers of all the companies, of tech companies doing layoffs. Um, it's right. a really depressing <laughs> website, but it's interesting. <laughs> and so, um, we'll put it in the show doing... notes so people yeah. can look it up. I will do that. <laughs> so, who has been doing what? Well, just a few examples. Um, Meta laid off 11,000 workers, which is 13% of its workforce. Twitter, as Peter said, 50%, almost 4,000 people. Stripe, 14%. Intel, 20. Lyft, 13. But it's not just companies that have laid off people. It's also companies that have announced plans like Amazon, which is planning to lay off 10,000 employees as well. Another interesting one is Google, which has not announced layoffs, but has announced a new performance management system where managers need to categorize 6% of the employees which is 10,000 people, as low performance. So people are really expecting that this is a preparation for layoffs. But there are many more examples, but I'm sure that you get the drift of what this is all about. But it's also not just about the layoffs. It's also about the famous perks that used to come with working in the tech industry. Like, for instance, Google and Netflix and Meta have also been cutting perks like free food, like the laundry services, limiting business travel, other types of spending. And so it really is not just the cost-cutting measures, but it's... In, 
emotional and a cultural reset as well, because it could mean that the golden era of big tech with the big perks and the big salary might maybe be over. So why are these big tech companies doing these layoffs? Well, the most obvious one is, of course, that they were one of the few industries that profited from the COVID-19 pandemic. Everybody went online because that was pretty much all we could do. So what happened? They overestimated the pandemic fuel boom. They bet on an exponential curve. They bet on the fact that the trend would stay. So they overinvested, overhired, and acquired big companies at high prices. And now this hubris has come back to bite them in the ass. The second one is, of course, the uncertain economy as a whole. The growth has been slowing down, looming recession. So revenue for them, too, is down, like ad revenue, uh, subscriptions for Netflix, for instance. Service and product sales are down. That's two. The third one is certainly, I think, also the fact that there are new paradigms that are emerging, like Web3 and the metaverse, which some of them have been really heavily experimenting on, betting on, investing which seems like a smart thing to do on the one hand, but also this is really about long-term revenue. For instance, Meta has invested over 13 billion in its metaverse bets, but mass market products and real revenue are still many years away. Then the fourth one, why this is happening is, well, new competition, like the new Web2 kids on the block, like TikTok, but also maybe be real, I don't know. Let's, we can see about that. But also, it's about incumbents striking back, like Disney having an effect on, on Netflix. And the fifth and last reason that I want to give is possibly one that is one of the most overlooked and which uh, Peter has uh, also uh, said something about when he talked about Twitter, is the fact that these big tech companies are now really mature. There's Google search ads business, which is 20 years old, YouTube 15, Facebook 18, Twitter 16, Amazon even 28 years. And maybe, maybe they are less dynamic than they used to be. They used to be these big disruptors. And now they have become big established giants and the consequence of that is that they cannot provide investors with the same kind of massive growth that they had in the 2000s and in the 2010s. And we all know that that type of growth slowed down is always punished by Wall Street. But there is also a possible bright side to this. Well, obviously, all these job losses are awful. But on the other hand, Silicon Valley has always been known for its creative destruction. Some say that this may be the early stages of another cycle of innovation, because in Silicon Valley history, we have often seen iconic companies that have launched themselves in down market times, like Google, who launched itself in 1998, which was just before the dot-com bust. And what we see happening now is something I think really interesting, is that we have a huge amount of super bright big tech engineers who have cashed in over the years, who have years of experience and are now probably also looking at joining startups or maybe building startups of their own that might eventually disrupt the big tech. And we even see VCs that are comparing this period to the early 1990s, just before the internet took off. So to answer the question, do I think that the golden era of big tech is over? No, I do not. They may be less valuable, but they're still the most valuable companies in the world. 
I think this is rather a slump rather than an ending. But I also think that the real story here might go beyond just the fact that they have miscalculated the pandemic impacts and that there is the effect of an economic downturn. This could be an inflection point, maybe, just before we see new tech players surfacing. And I think it might be interesting to watch what will happen here. In China, there's actually the same layoffs happening in all the big tech as well on a massive scale and for the same pretty much five reasons, as you noted. There's one sixth one in China, which is regulation. And so the regulation has changed a lot over the last two years where the government has stepped in really to target monopolies to be more fair and more interoperability and so that they work together. They just want these companies to work together and not compete as much and give back to society. This is the direction with common prosperity that China is going to. This could be maybe something even globally that we have to take care more about inclusivity, more about the, the planet and so on, so that the, in China it's the government who's stepping in. Maybe in the rest of the world it's also some of the companies that uh, will have to go into that direction or they're going to lose maybe consumers or, or people that actually are on their platform. I don't know, but uh, I see the same thing happening in China. And so I think China was not affected with the same thing as in the West when it comes to uh, that digital transformation during the pandemic. So I, I think it's it's more systemic globally. And I think it also created much more people wanting to join startups now in China again. And innovation is, is actually being fueled because of it again. So yes, I see the same thing. And maybe just one thing to add on to that. I think the, the fundamental thing that I see is that the whole venture capital equation has changed uh, tremendously in the last 12 months. And that is because of interest rates. I mean, the situation that we have now where venture capital had a very interesting proposition for people you know, with funds has completely changed in 12 months time because of economic, financial and an interest rate reality. And you have two conclusions. One is the unicorn escalation that we have seen is definitely over. And a lot of the unicorns that were proclaimed unicorns over the last 12, 24 months are now no longer a unicorn because they are experiencing a lot less valuations than before. You know, there's the famous zombie unicorns that are out there that once were a unicorn, but are no longer a unicorn. And that means that if you work there, you are royally screwed because if you're an engineer, you got stop options at the valuations of a unicorn and it's no longer unicorn, you're basically working for free. And the second thing is the venture capital industry in itself. I, I had a chance in September to spend a lot of time with a number of VCs in the US and the number one thing I've heard over and over again is less investments in new companies and keep all your money that you have in the fund for follow-up investments to try and save the investments we made in the past. So it's going to be a lot more difficult to get funding for new initiatives. So I think it's not just the big, big tech companies like the Apples or the Metas, but it's also you know, that whole mass of more than a thousand unicorns around the world, which are now in flux like crazy. And that is going to have a huge impact. Shall we go to the last topic of this episode? We've already been talking about a lot of things. It's a little bit longer than usual, but we hope that you find everything interesting. But Pascal, I want to end with you. A few weeks ago, you took one of our next works tour to India. Uh, we all know you are our China expert. Um, this was your first time going on a tour like that to India. So we're all very curious to hear your opinion and to see if India could become the next China. What do you think? 
Yeah, it's uh, it was an extraordinary experience, uh, the India tour. And uh, from now on, you can call me a, an India expert if you want to. But uh, the reality is that um, I just went there on a tour with Nextverse to understand a little bit what's happening. And I was so surprised. So after all the bad news we had today about Walt Disney, FTX and Elon Musk and all the problems and COVID, of course, I think the India story is a real positive one. It's incredible what's happening there. And I don't think enough people are watching what the transformation is happening right now in India. And I wanted to compare it a little bit with China because, I mean, they both have 1.4 billion people. They came from an agriculture background and, and of course, they are global players now. But for me, there was a lot of conflicting images when I went to India because I saw the poverty, I saw the slums in Mumbai, I saw beggars, I saw inefficiency, I saw, I mean, farmers all around that are actually very inefficient. So a lot of problems. At the same time, I saw like a whole mentality of, of change and, and willingness. And specifically, I mean, if there's one place unicorns and super unicorns or almost unicorns are, are still alive and, and really doing very well, it seems to be India. And so they seem to be very bullish on their future. I could see infrastructure happening, entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, it was amazing to see. And it made me think very much like China 10, 20 years ago in many aspects. But then I think it started making more sense the more days I spent there. And if I compare with China, because the question is, can India become the next China? I think India is still 30 years behind on many of the social aspects. I'm, I'm talking about poverty elevation, inclusion, even for women in the workforce, the caste system, all these things. I think it's still 30 years behind where China has, I mean, eradicated extreme poverty completely. India has not. On infrastructure, I saw buildings everywhere, bridges and subways. And I mean, this is like, for me, thinking about Shanghai 20 years ago. The city was just more dust than anything else because everything is transforming. And, and I think that's really, really interesting to see because in 20 years' time, India could be very, very different than it is today. On entrepreneurial business level, for me, it was like 10 years ago from China when I looked at the startup scene and the unicorns that were being built and the willingness to actually go further. And I think one of the biggest issues that India has is a lack of big companies. So a lot of family companies, small companies. And this to become a, a world power, you need to have a lot of big companies as well, which we were just talking about just now. But then I got the information and I was talking to people about the digital transformation. And that was really I mean, amazing. I mean, it's crazy to see how many people in India are completely mobile already. This is a transformation that I've seen in China as well, that I haven't seen anywhere. You see it now with because of the pandemic, but there it's not from because of the pandemic. It actually is because they feel this is going to transform their life completely. You saw 5G, Industry 4.0. I mean, we're all talking about these digital platforms and money platforms and I mean, I was like feeling like I was in China at that point when they were talking about their digital future. And so I think they're ahead of Europe, to be honest, in many aspects when it's about the digital. So we can go to India to learn about the digital future for sure. But I think what's really cool about this period now is that India has been kind of like always been the brains and the service center of the world and exporting a lot of their brains to the rest of the world. And this is a lot about software. Well, China chose to become the factory of the world and a lot about hardware and basically do the hard work. The difference with that is that when you do hardware, you can involve 1.4 billion people. 
when you do software, it's an elite that is actually developing the next future. And so that is the reason why India, in my view, did not create the same boom as China did, because they started from the top, while China started from the bottom. And now you see the opposite happening, which is a really interesting transformation, where you can see that India is now really wanting to go into hardware, wanting to use these hands, because China's demographic is a huge problem for the future. India doesn't have that. They have a lot of young people, specifically in the north of India. And so they're now going to become the factory of tomorrow because they have all these hands available, while China is now doing the opposite, wanting to go into software and wanting to go into using the brains more, educate people with universities and so on, because they need to actually uh, get the productivity higher to get into a higher level income. And so it's like they both started from the, the opposite part of the spectrum, and they're now trying to switch to go to that next future. So in that aspect, India, if they can marry well this software and hardware, they could become the next China in a way. But I think the biggest transformation for me, and that is what I've seen, is on a social level and on a political level. And this has to do with Modi's government, the BJP, which I don't know if you know, this is the biggest party in India. But this party has more members than the Communist Party in China. So this is like 100 million people are member of this BJP party. And so this is now very much unified under Modi. And so it's a more Hindu party, actually. And so what that means is that they're coming from the bottom up. And this has a lot to do with trying to get those hundreds of millions of people that weren't involved in the workforce of India to get them higher up. The women, the caste system is starting to erode a little bit, which is the only way to get out of this mess in, in a way, because there's so many people there. Farmers are getting more technology innovation and, and, and fertilizers that are better and, and better for the environment and so on. And, and so you see that this BJP is actually making really bold long-term statements and investments and infrastructure and so on. And so it makes me think a little bit like what China did 20 years ago, because now suddenly they've kind of unified the direction and can do things on a large scale. I wouldn't call it a one-party system, but it's like in China, but it is a little bit going into that same direction where they have very little competition these days. And so this is, this is really cool to see. And so many people were talking about this is going to be the decade of India. If you see the expected economic growth, 6 to 8% continues for the next 10 years. I mean, there's no country in the world of that scale that, uh, or a big country that is still going to grow at that pace. So India could be the next growth engine for the world in the next 10 years. And so this is going to be a big thing. But maybe to conclude, one of the things that I really liked about India is that somehow their way of thinking about innovation is different from Silicon Valley and from China. In Silicon Valley, I mean, it's and we talked about it, it's about unicorns, it's about being unique, it's about being different, it's, it's a lot about basically making sure you're the first and having these big dreams, making things happen like Elon Musk. Well, in China, I mean, it's a lot about what we call these red oceans. It's, it's just simply trying to use the scale and the speed that you need in a big market where there's a lot of consumers, bottom-up thinking. I mean, not the early adopters, but everybody, very inclusive. And this is very ecosystem thinking. It's about agile and so on. And so this is a very much different environment. And India somehow is starting or is actually marrying both. They're combining both because they have the scale 
They have the decisions on long term now. They also have these ecosystems and these family relationships. But at the same time, they have the link with the West. They have the link with Silicon Valley, the link with UK. They understand these big dreams. And we always say China is the land of hope. Uh, India, in my view, is the land of dreams because they have a third eye, which is about fate and destiny and luck. And this is about these big dreams that, that they're trying to achieve. And so I think if we want to combine basically in the West, in Europe, in the US, combine that typically unicorn-like disruptive kind of thinking with also using the availability of scale and inclusivity and even sustainability in that, India is actually not a bad place to go and visit specifically because when I looked at sustainability, they're very forward-thinking, even more than China. The difference is there it's more embedded into the business sense, while in China it's more government-driven. And so I think this is something we can learn a lot from in the future. So I truly enjoyed it. I'm not going to become the India expert. I'm <laughs> going to stay the China expert. But I think comparing these two and seeing where they're at different stages is very interesting. And I think if India and China would get along, I think the West would have a real big issue. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Pascal. And just for our listeners, if you want to experience India yourself, in 2023, we have a NextWorks open tour planned to go to India. It's in Q4. And you can go to our website and there you can find all the details. And maybe you can experience that India feeling the land of the dreams, as you call it, uh, for real. So thanks for sharing that, Pascal. I suggest, guys, that we round off this episode. I want to thank my panel of Pascal, Laurence and Peter for being here. And we hope to hear you again in our next episode of Radar. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website, nextworks.com, to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.